the Buddha taught the Dhamma. And the Dhamma is the way things are. It is the truth in a directly experienced sense. And contained within that is the understanding that the way things are is not chaotic, but rather there is an unfolding of the mind which can be seen and understood if attention is paid to it. When we undertake to practice the Dhamma, we are engaging in behavior and reflection and practices to train the mind, the speech, our behavior, to align our heart and our thinking with the truth. Because we don't always live aligned with the truth. And we end up feeling stressed, anxiety, fearful, that life is a struggle at times. To live in alignment with the way things are, in the deepest sense of the word, is to be at peace to not struggle anymore. When we struggle with the way things are, when we deny the way things are, when we live in fear or cling to other than the way things are, we suffer. The Buddha's teaching points to the way to discover the Dhamma and to live in alignment with it. The Buddha's taught people from all classes of life, kings, queens, monks, nuns, householders, men, women, children, those who are very literate, those who are very unsophisticated. And he used a wide range of metaphors, techniques, just a vast uh, repertoire of tools for guiding whoever was in front of him towards a little less suffering. The goal of the Buddha's teaching is to suffer less. And ultimately, if we can imagine and if we could achieve uh, perfection, whatever that is, to not suffer at all. Now this freedom from suffering, this lessening of suffering, is not a given. 
we can live our lives in such a way as to increase the confusion and bewilderment and torments in our mind, or we can live in such a way as to minimize and possibly uproot the sources of torment in our mind. No one can prevent you from doing it. On the other hand, no one can do it for you. As Kamala mentioned, this is a do-it-yourself job. And the teachings are available to any who look. They're there. They're in the books. They're, they're being taught. They're being practiced. There's just, it's available. And what we see if we look very far in the teachings is that the Buddha was very uh, systematic in addressing the full range of difficulties that human beings faced. He understood that through practice, beings progress towards less suffering. It's not an either-or situation, either you are or you aren't, but rather to the degree that we suffer, that we're unhappy, that we struggle, it is possible to progress, to move away from that, to move towards a little more peace in a very gradual, progressive manner. Systematic, progressive, and the Buddhist teachings are comprehensive. They touch every aspect of our life. Our life in relationship with each other, the life within our own mind, the life of eternity, if you will. Whatever we imagine this whole uh, karmic unfolding to be, whether personal karmic unfolding or universal karmic unfolding. The Buddhist teaching speaks to it. Last night I spoke about the Four Noble Truths, the first of which is Dukkha. When we're tormented by our own mind, we experience Dukkha. The torments of the mind are called Kilesa in, in Pali. That's, that's what they are. They're the torments of the mind. And we know what they are. Desire, aversion, pride, jealousy, uh, ignorance, dullness of mind, uh, arrogance, uh, you know, lack of consideration for others, uh, disrespect of ourselves, confused understanding of the way things are. It, they're not so. They're not so far away. They're very immediate. And there are degrees of kilesas. There are degrees of suffering, if you will. When the 
kalesas are being acted out. When we're acting out, or when others are acting out hatred, we end up with Kosovo in the Middle East. When we're acting out desire, blindly, just, you know, willy-nilly, just, we have endless uh, destruction of the environment and accumulation of capital at the expense of the vast majority of the world's population. Tremendous suffering in the aggregate when the kalesas are acted out. One person acting on their hatred can cause innumerable others a tremendous amount of suffering. Tremendous. We call the acting out of kalesas the transgressive defilements because they transgress against others. They damage others. But even when we or others are not acting out the kalesas, such as we're doing here, the kalesas are still in the mind. And our mind is tormented. It's just, we may not be saying and doing and speaking, thankfully, what is going on in our mind. <laughs> We're not inflicting our tormented mind on others. We're just kind of, we're just kind of sitting in our own stew, so to speak, cooking. And there's a fair amount of suffering there. This is called the obsessive kalesis, because the mind is just obsessed with thoughts, judgments, opinions, plans, uh, revenge, you know, self-condemnation, uh, criticism of others, cynicism. It just, it just, it hurts. It really hurts, as you know, to to just to become aware of the obsessive kalesis. But in our practice, we find some periods of time when we're not acting out and we're not obsessed. There's a certain coolness in the mind. It may be brief, it may be long. Nevertheless, there's a, a certain ease, a certain tranquility, a certain relief. But it's unstable because conditions change and the obsessions come back. In those situations we'd say the kalesas are merely latent. They're not yet uprooted. The Buddha's Eightfold Path, the Fourth Noble Truth, offers three trainings. The training in behavior, in speech, called sila, ethical living, which addresses those transgressive kilesis. It puts a break on acting out. That's the first training. The second training is a training in samadhi, or calming the mind down tranquilizing the mind, bringing a little bit of stillness to the mind. 
And this has the effect of cooling out those obsessive kilesas. And it's the development of insight or wisdom, the third training in the Eightfold Path, that sees the way things are and actually uproots the latent kalesas in our mind. This is the progressive nature of the Buddhist teachings. You know, deal with acting out first, then we'll deal with the obsessiveness, and then we'll deal with the latent, hidden, unobserved conditions. These kalesas, they're the root of all of our suffering to the degree that they are not acted on, tranquilized and uprooted from the mind, we're free. We're free of suffering. We're free of dukkha. I want to speak about the first of these trainings in the Buddha's Eightfold Path, the training of ethical conduct, sila, living in harmony, I think sometimes we underestimate or we under-ascribe to ourselves and practice how important it is to preserve, to maintain, preserve, to cultivate harmony in our relationships as the most basic force for happiness in our life. We can sit in isolation, in seclusion, and develop a powerful, concentrated mind. But if our personal life outside of retreat is chaotic, that stillness is fragile. It's not going to last. You can go on a retreat, do a little dharma binging, and you'll get some tranquility. But there's no lasting effect. And in the early years of the Dharma in the West, it was back in the late 60s, early 70s, and you remember what it was like, for those of you who are living then, <laughs> and some of you who weren't, uh, may have heard. Uh, life was pretty carefree and casual and... Uh, I think we assumed that the chaos of our personal relationships didn't really matter. You could always go on a retreat, chill out, and forget it. Get through it, get beyond it, get away from it, so to speak. And if we had a powerful mind, good concentration, then, as some people do, you can kind of slip through that net temporarily. But I'm sure you've all seen here in the few days we've been practicing how much our life outside of retreat is the topic of dialogue or monologue in our practice. It's, it's not so far away. It's not like life out there is over there and my practice is here. It's, you know, the personal history review is pretty relentless. And we just go over and over and over and over and over stuff that has been a source of 
suffering or conflict or pain or irritation or confusion in our life, and we can't avoid it. It just comes up in over and over and over again. And it will come up even more so as the mindfulness gets stronger. Because mindfulness is really remembering correctly. It's remembering the way things really are. And even though we may not have known when we acted out, we may have justified to ourselves, we may have rationalized, we may have explained, we may have felt perfectly uh, okay doing what we did. When the mind straightens out and sees things as it really is, or really was, we see things differently. And that's the whole direction and thrust of the development of mindfulness. It straightens the mind so that we can no longer deceive ourselves. That will be welcome to some of us and unwelcome to some of us. Because we are so skillful at convincing ourselves, rationalizing to ourselves, justifying to ourselves what we want. And the truth may be elsewhere. Mindfulness will find it. So sila is, we're living in harmony, the, the, the living with respect for oneself and others, is, is a force of purity in our life. It is a, uh, one of the paramis, one of the uh, qualities of the awakened mind. To purify our speech and actions of the kalesis. One time in Burma, Upandita gave a talk on why you should listen to Dharma talks. As if we needed to know. But some of the Dharma talks he gave, you needed to know. And he said that there's an opportunity there to hear what you've not heard before, as I heard the truth about dukkha. You know, bringing things out of the closet. You know, what you've lived in fear and denial of, you get to hear in a Dharma talk. It's also the opportunity to correct wrong understanding. We may hear, or we may think, this is the way it is. And in the Dharma talk, we hear something else. And it gives us the opportunity to realign our thinking. It's also a chance to be encouraged and inspired, which I hope we do some. And mostly Dharma talks uh, offer a, a direction, support for your aspiration. So sila, ethical conduct, is the first training of the Buddha's Eightfold Path. Here, on retreat, we take five precepts, or we take eight precepts, as our practice of sila. And in the taking of those precepts, we, we understand them as agreements that we have as a community. And by each of us undertaking 
these trainings to refrain from harming, stealing, uh, acting out sexually, speaking the truth, and, and, and not intoxicating the mind or not clouding the mind. By undertaking these, and, and knowing that we all have undertaken them, it provides a powerful support for our practice. It's really helpful to know, whether you reflect on it consciously or not, that we all are in agreement, at least for this period of time. I'll give you an example. If you lived in a neighborhood, you know, a community of 35, 40 people, and one person among you was a thief, and you knew it, no one could feel safe. And it only takes one person. No one's property would be safe. And so, by agreeing among ourselves that for this period of time we'll do, we, we will do and we won't do these things, already there's this, this, this base for the tranquility of the mind to be established on. Powerful support for, for harmony, safety. And by supporting safety and harmony in community, we actually support our faith, our confidence in practice, our confidence in the teachings, our confidence in our own efforts. <clears throat> when I was a monk in, in Burma, you know, monks, the whole, the whole idea about monks and nuns is you get a group of people to live together in agreement according to rules, and you can live quite well sharing what you have, not harming each other, and you know, living quite minimally in order to practice. And so monks have 227 rules that they have to live by. And these rules cover everything about a monk's life. In the footnotes, or in the articulation of those rules, they say there's more than 90,000 million rules. Because there's a lot of, you know, in this case that, in this case that, not this and not that. Well, 227 is enough. What you can eat, when you can eat, how you can eat, what you can wear, when you can wear, what, who you can talk to, when you can talk to them, how you stand, sit, walk, go to the toilet, wash your robes, don't wash your robes, sew, mend, where you live, what you can... Everything is covered by the rules. The whole practice of being a monk is to live by the rules. Some of the rules actually support development of wisdom. A lot of the rules are to preserve the harmony of the monastic community. And a fair amount of those rules are to support the faith of lay people who support the monks. Because if monks and nuns act in such a way as to damage the faith of the lay supporters, that, that, that's really... Uh, a grievous error, if you will. Because faith in the Dharma, faith in the practice, a willingness to undertake the practice to free, is so important. Without it, we don't practice. Without faith, we're condemned to endless wandering in samsara. And whatever supports our faith or the faith of others is essential to protect, to preserve. 
our commitment to the precepts supports each other's faith. When any one of us drops the precepts, we damage the faith of all of us. Wow. Hmm. Now, it's not possible to live by the precepts all the time. So, there's going to be times when we cut corners, you know, or when just inadvertently we make a mistake and we're careless and, and we're, we're disrespectful to ourselves, to each other, to our own faith, to the faith of others. And so, there's this, uh, this acknowledgement that, oops, uh, I acted outside of our community agreements. We call this confession. Now, sometimes, if you were raised in some traditions, confession is like, you were a bad person. You know, you may get struck down by a bolt of lightning or something like that. But really, what is the act of confession? The act of confession is to acknowledge to yourself, I acted outside of our community agreements. That's all. It's to say, I'm sorry, I damaged your faith. Or that I acted in such a way that might have caused you insecurity, a lack of safety. That's what confession is. Well, in the monastic rules, of course, there are some rules. If you break, that's it. You can't even confess them. You're no longer a monk. Severe. It so damages the faith of others that it's just not confessable. But then there's this whole range of rules that if you break one of these rules, you can make a confession, but you also have to uh, undertake a penance, a period of probation, and then you have to be readmitted into the monkhood. When you first get ordained as a monk, it only takes five monks to ordain you. If you break a rule and you have to be readmitted, it takes 20 monks to reordain you. Well, I was careless. Broke a rule. Had to go confess. Went to my teacher. And I was feeling really ashamed. I, I was feeling about this big. Really, I, I had the old Christian guilt trip going in my mind. You know, you break a rule, you're guilty, you're going to be condemned to a not nice place for a while, if not forever. And I couldn't get this out of my mind. This is what was going on. It's like, oh, torturous. Well, I had to go tell Upandita. I broke one of the rules. And I expected the wrath of somebody to come down on me. So I went, I just, I said, well, you know what? I, I really, I got to do it. So I went to Upandita, paid my respects. And I said, I have to confess I broke one of the rules. And he just kind of, he was right there with me, just no messing around. When? Today. How many times? Once. You have to confess. Okay? Do the formal confession. Now he says, you have to undertake a week of penance and a week of probation. Uh, you can start in the morning. Meet outside my, my room at uh, 4.30 or something like that. And when you do the penance, you have to live separate from all the other monks in the monastery. So that everybody knows, you're, you're doing the penance. Okay, so I said, oh, 
Okay, here we go. 4.30 in the morning. I met, uh, I went down to his uh, cootie. Oh, there were three other monks going to do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. You know? And not only that, they were senior monks in the monastery. <laughs> so I said, wow, what's going on here? So I went through the, you know, the week, penance, probation, all this, got readmitted to the order. When I went through that process, you know, you think, oh, that's going to be a really humiliating, a shameful, um, a guilty thing. It's not that at all. It's amazing. When you understand what the power of community agreements and the power of confession and the asking of forgiveness, it's a powerful act of uh, self-empowerment and realigning your behavior with your highest aspiration. And contrary to what I thought, that I would be condemned by the other monks, they were so happy, really, that I was able to, that I cared about the harmony of that community, that I would confess first and asked to be readmitted. They were really happy. Not, no, not that I was careless, but that I was able to and cared enough about the community to do that. Contrary to all of my expectations. Tremendous fear. Tremendous relief. This is the practice of sila. Really honoring the th- fabric of our community, of our interpersonal relationships. It's a practice because everything that we see come up in our mind, fear and desire and judgment and guilt around the precepts, it's all practice. It's just the tormented mind. It's no different than sitting in seclusion in a cave somewhere watching your mind. You're doing it kind of out in public, if you will. Because our behavior, what we say, how we say, what we do, when we do, is not always conducive to the harmony of our community, sila is a training. It's an, it's an education. It's learning to live in harmony and learning what others have seen leads to harmony. Essentially, you know, while we take the precepts, I undertake the training to refrain from X, Y, Z. It's a training. There's no authority up there or over there that is keeping track, that's going to make a a record of it. It's just our own willingness, our own integrity, really. I want to be supportive of practice. I'll undertake this training because even though I might not agree to it, I might not yet see the wisdom of this behavior, I understand where it's coming from, and I'll try it. Because sometimes, you know, the, the, the living by the precepts is, a, is a, uh, an imposition on our uh, free-wheeling spirit. 
and it sometimes might feel very restrictive. Well, what do you mean I can't do that? What's it to you? <laughs> I've had that attitude before. Yeah. Well, maybe we don't agree, but at least we're willing to take a period of time to train in it, to see what it would be like. The training is actually a practice of restraint. Just, you know, uh, not doing, or not acting out. And we do it out of respect for each other, respect for ourselves. We make a commitment, we'll try to keep it. And the exercising of restraint is the conservation of a tremendous amount of energy. If you're not acting out, all the energy that goes into acting out is now available to you. And if what you're doing with your energy is watching your mind, your mind is going to brighten up, lighten up. You're going to, the mind's going to get energized because we're not distracting ourselves with acting out. The restraint comes not from a punitive authority, but from care, respect, from love of one another. Really, the precepts are a, a, an articulation of how to care for each other, how to respect one another. They're based on metta and karuna, loving-kindness, compassion. As we exercise some restraint, not acting out, our wishes, our, our unconscious compulsions or obsessions, really, as we exercise some restraint, we begin to purify the mind. Because sila is a practice of purification. And what do we purify the mind of? We purify the mind of dishonesty, harshness, in speaking, dishonesty, harshness, uh, frivolousness, uselessness. We purify in our actions. We purify our actions so that we protect life, not harm life. So that we preserve property, not abuse or overconsume the resources of the world. We honor our relationships, purifying our mind of the tendency to dishonor. And we have these tendencies, we have these impulses, we have these obsessions, we, and sometimes we act them out. It's a source of conflict in our hearts. Sila is a restraint in order to honor our relationships, purifying our mind. The two qualities of heart that are called the guardians of the world, because they really protect the world from just falling into chaos, are what in Pali is known as Hiri and Dotapa, translated loosely as modesty and conscience. How do we know what 
behavior is proper, is correct, is wholesome. Well, you can go to any number of authorities in the books, in the churches, in the social authorities, whatever, and you'll get an opinion. And sometimes they agree and sometimes they don't. So how do we know? Ultimately, the Buddha's teaching points to our own heart. If you want to know what causes pain, look in your own heart. Look at your own speech, look at your own behavior, and see what it does to your heart. Because what it does to your heart is what it does to others' hearts. If we sensitize ourselves, if we develop mindfulness so that we cannot deceive ourselves, then we'll know. It's a hard test. It's, it's, it's a, 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 the high bar, if you will, or the low bar, the high bar. Yeah, it's the high bar to get over because we always know if we're willing to look whether what we say, what we do, how we say, how we do causes our heart to contract or to remain open. Hiriyotapa. A sense of modesty, cultivating a sense of modesty, really is attuning ourselves to our own standards of what causes pain and what causes harmony. Conscience is attuning yourself to the community in which you live and their standards of what causes pain and what causes harmony. If we want to live in community, there has to be that respect. There's just no, there's just no way around it. If you want to live in community, you have to respect the community. You may disagree with them. That's not your community. Your community is the one that you care about, that you care how they think about you. That's who your spiritual community is. And if there's nobody that you care how they think about you, that's your community. If you feel isolated and alone and uh, alienated, there's a reason. <clears throat> so we undertake the practices of restraint in our behavior and our speech in order to protect our relationships, honor our commitments, preserve the harmony in, in community. There's an additional benefit from living carefully, and that is we don't judge ourselves. We protect ourselves from our own judgments of ourselves. If we consistently act or try to act with integrity, it's hard to judge, it's hard to find fault with ourselves. And I know, I, I, I know in practice, 
we, you know, the personal history review, we see all those times when we acted carelessly, when we said something in haste and stuck our foot in our mouth and and we see it and we feel how, even if nobody judged us, we judge ourselves. That's painful. That's suffering. But if we're careful, we have less cause for that self-judgment. As a protection, sila also protects us from being blamed by others. Not only from reproaching ourselves, but from being blamed by others. If we act consistently to preserve the harmony in our relationships, in our communities, who's going to blame us? It's said that there's a third protection, third benefit as a protection, that if you live uh, in consideration or with consideration for others, the authorities won't punish you. Well, that's assuming that you have just authorities. But uh, generally, we can say there's less reason or less cause for it. And as a fifth, as a fourth uh, benefit, it's said that uh, if you live with integrity in your relationships, that you'll have a pleasant rebirth. (laughs) We'll see. Let's hope so. As we practice, as we exercise some restraint, and we begin to see our own heart and how our heart moves in relationship to others' speech and behavior and our own speech and behavior, we begin to grow in understanding. We begin to grow in our own wisdom. And we begin to see that, you know, these precepts are not just the imposition of somebody else's good idea, but really they're an articulation of very deep wisdom. They really come from a place of deep understanding of what causes suffering. They're not just some willy-nilly good idea, be moral, but they really do preserve the peace of our heart. Again, sila, care and respect, living in harmony, is the foundation for stilling the mind. Sila is a foundation for the development of concentration. A stable, solid, firm uh, stillness of the mind is not possible if you're agitated, if you're concerned, if you're fearing your own judgment or the judgment of others. It's just not possible. Upandita used to talk about sila being the greatest gift that you can give the world. Imagine if you lived with that kind of care and consideration. You give others no cause for concern. You're not acting in any way that compromises your relationship with each other. 
Others can trust you, can feel safe around you, believe you to live with integrity, or know you to live with integrity. What else can you give someone but that kind of respect or the opportunity to feel safe? That's the whole idea about spiritual communities, living as a monk, living as a nun, living together as we do here on retreat. We give each other a great gift by living with integrity, by acknowledging to each other, you know, I care about your faith in the Dharma. I don't want to do anything to damage it. If I do, it's inadvertent. It's, it's just carelessness. It's, it's, a, it's something that I want to be, have pointed out to me, and I want to make amends if possible. You know, when IMS in Massachusetts at the meditation center there, it's been a meditation center now for about 25 years, 24, 25 years. And for most of those 25 years, it's been in silence. You know, there's retreats going on day in, day out. Occasionally they have some, um, some talk days and the staff talk, of course. But it has a powerful effect on people who don't practice in the neighborhood. Even the UPS man or woman, you know how they are. Wow, they're on, you know, short time schedule. And they come barreling in, and it's like they get blasted with this care, concern, respect, hold the door open for them. They lose their steam. <laughs> That's what we do to each other when we have this commitment to caring for each other in this way. You know, you can be a, an ethical ostrich only so long. You can, you can just deny the effect of your behavior on others only so long. And then, you know, it, it just becomes so obvious that how we are in the world deeply affects each other. Maladoma Somme, a kind of an African shaman, if you will, he says, We do not recognize that the sacred thing we violate today does not want to retaliate immediately. It lives in a different time frame. We might think we're getting away with something, as Ruth Dennison said, you don't get away with nothing. But neither do we need to be a spiritual athlete. Hearing spiritual teachings and taking on more than we can actually fulfill. You know the spiritual athlete assumes the air of uh, spirituality, takes on the practices of spirituality, and inside their heart's corrupted. Sometimes there's an idealization of spiritual goals without actually a practical grounding in our own behavior.
Kabir has an interesting poem about the hopeful spiritual athlete. The spiritual athlete often changes the color of his clothes, and his mind remains gray and loveless. Or he sits inside a shrine room all day so that God has to go out and praise the rocks. <laughs> he drills holes in his ear. His beard grows enormous and matted. People mistake him for a goat. <laughs> he goes out into the wilderness areas, strangles his impulses, makes himself neither male or female. He shaves his skull, puts his robe in an orange vat, reads the Bhagavad Gita and becomes a terrific talker. Kabir says, actually, you're going in a hearse to the country of death, bound hand and foot. <laughs> we find him everywhere. And when I was in Burma, there was a monk there. And uh, I don't want to... Uh, he had noble aspirations, and he had a solid commitment to the, to the Dharma and the, the Vinaya, living by the rules. But he was so, such a perfectionist and such, so uptight about the rules, he couldn't live with any other monk. He felt that he was being contaminated by their behavior. And so he lived in isolation, alone, outside of the community. Spiritual athlete. But when we're a trainee, when we really understand that Sila is a training, we are trainees. We're training our mind, we're training our speech, we're training our behavior so that we can gradually, incrementally learn to live with integrity. Kabir says again, if you have not lived through something, it is not true. If you have not lived through something, for you, it's not true. As we live with our self-respect, the integrity of our commitment, the care and concern for others, and the preservation of our community, our heart opens. We begin to see and understand why the precepts are the way they are. And rather than an imposition of an authoritative rule or a punitive authority, they become our expression of our deepest understanding. Lama Yeshe, speaking of care and concern in our human relationships, says, if you want to be really happy, it isn't enough to just space out in meditation. Many people who spent years alone in meditation have finished up worse for it. Coming back to society, they have freaked out. They haven't been able to take contact with other people. All the difficulties in our interpersonal relationships come from not having loving kindness, the essence of the bodhisattva within our own heart. This loving kindness creates space in your mind. He says, your human relationships are not for chocolate, not for sensory pleasures. Something much deeper can come from our being together, our working together. Then, the more you are involved with people, the more pleasure you get. 
People become the resource or the source of your pleasure. You're living for them, and then no matter where you go, you'll never freak out. So just be practical, he says. If you can't help others, at least don't bother them. <laughs> so let's sit for a while and let the words quiet down. If you want to be really happy, it isn't enough just to space out in meditation. What we need is loving-kindness, the essence of the bodhisattva. It creates space in your mind. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.